0: Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, we're going to deviate from our usual format because I'm going to try to answer some of the emails that I get. First of all I have to apologize. I get so many emails that it's impossible for me to answer all of them. So, I want to take this opportunity to answer some of these emails on air. One persistent email that I always get is the question of God. And believe it or not, God is in the news. That's right. First of all, the late Stephen Hawking has a new book coming out posthumously where he says, "Bah, Humbug, there is no God. And he even gives a, quote, scientific proof, unquote, of the non-existence of God. So, well, we'll talk about that. And then the Einstein God Letter is up for auction. If you have a spare million dollars, then you too can possess a piece of science history, a handwritten letter in Einstein's own handwriting, addressing the question of God and I think the media has misinterpreted that letter. But anyway, the God letter is up for auction. And if you have a spare million dollars, then you too can have a piece of science history. So on exploration, I'll try to answer that question. What does science say about the existence of God? And for that matter, what do I think about the existence of God? Well, first of all, this question has practical historical implications in the world scene. If you were to go back, let's say a thousand years, a thousand years into the past, at a time when the Europeans were engulfed with the Inquisition, and burning witches, and finding demons and witches everywhere, you begin to realize that the Chinese and the Muslim empires were doing quite well. For example, if you take a look at the names of the stars, Many of the names of the stars are Arabic, Algal, Altair, not to mention algebra. Where do you think the Al of algebra came from? Then what happened was, about a thousand years ago, there was a debate. A debate which affects human history even today. Islamic scholars began to debate the question, is there a God or is there something called natural law that supersedes God? Or, what's the relationship between God and natural law? On one hand, we had the great scientists of the Islamic world. These are the people who worked out mathematics, algebra. These are the people who worked out trigonometry. They are the ones who gave names to the stars in the heavens. They were astronomers, mathematicians, engineers, architects, and they believed in studying natural law. Perhaps it'd be one way to glorify Allah. However there were also the fundamentalists who said, bah, humbug, we don't have to study natural law because God can change natural law anytime he feels like. So why bother to study something which is so complicated, natural law, when Allah could simply snap his fingers and change natural law? Well, this debate went on for centuries, but it mainly signified the decline of basic science in the Islamic world. The great centers of Islamic learning gradually fell into the dust. It became a forgotten footnote in history that one day long ago, optics, physics, astronomy, mathematics was pioneered by the Islamic world. And that led to the decline which ultimately culminated in the decline of the Ottoman Empire. So, when World War I took place, The Islamic world was known as the sick man of Asia and Europe. People began to cut up the Ottoman Empire. And what we have today is the rump of the Ottoman Empire being Turkey. And so we see the fact that abandoning science had implications, not just theological implications about the existence of God and natural law. No, it also had direct implications in terms of prosperity, in terms of development, science, even warfare. All of that depended upon being nourished by the seeds coming from science, and science fell into decline as a consequence. Well, now let's take a look at the Western world. 500 years ago, the West was not much to look at. It was a net importer of technology. Technology came from elsewhere, like from China and from the Islamic world. Europe was a net importer Of technology. And then we had the persecution of Galileo. Galileo was asked, Do you really believe in God? Because your writings seem to indicate that perhaps there is no God. Well, Galileo said something very important. He said, The purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go, the purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. So, in other words, the purpose of science is to figure out natural laws. And the purpose of religion is ethics, how to go to heaven, how to be a good person, how to be an upstanding member of society. The problem occurs, he said, when people in natural law begin to pontificate about ethics or when people in religion begin to pontificate about natural law. That's when we get into trouble. The Church, for example, flirted with the idea of a flat Earth or the fact that the Earth was the center of the universe. If that were true, we would never have entered the space age. We would never have been able to map the surface of the Earth. Exploration, the economy, trade routes, the cyber revolution of today, the Internet, would have all been impossible if we believed that the Earth was flat or the Earth was the center of the universe. So if that was Galileo's take that there was no fundamental conflict between religion and science. Science was about natural law, and religion was about ethics. Well, now comes Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton takes it a million steps farther by actually writing down, using mathematics, the laws of natural law. And so, all of a sudden, we were thrust into the age of calculus, thrust into the age of the three laws of Isaac Newton. But, of course, he was criticized because Newton had a new picture. The new picture is that the universe is a clock, a gigantic clock ticking away. God set it into motion and it's been obeying the three laws of motion ever since. Well, then came the killer question. If the universe is a clock, then why do we need God? Is God simply uh, a luxury that we don't need? All we have is Newton's laws of motion. Newton was troubled by this because, of course, Newton was very religious. Back in those days, you had to be religious or you could never get a position at a place like Cambridge University. So Newton fudged a bit. And he said that, well, you see, first of all, God created the clock. And every once in a while, he has to tweak the clock. He has to intervene in his own laws of motion. You see, what happened was a clergyman wrote him a letter, a very important letter that's quoted even today. And that letter said something very interesting. That letter said that the universal law of gravity is attraction. The earth is attracted to the sun. The sun is attracted to the galaxy. Everything is attracted by gravity. But then this minister said, If everything is attracted to everything else, then why doesn't the universe collapse? Well, that stumped Newton. He was shaken. He was speechless. Yes, it's true. Gravity is attractive, not repulsive. It's attractive. So sooner or later, all the stars in the heavens would come together and collapse into a gigantic fireball, and we wouldn't be here to talk about it. Well... Isaac Newton was floored by this criticism. He thought a lot about this. And finally, he wrote a letter, a very famous letter to address this question. He said that the universe must be infinite and uniform because if it's infinite and uniform, then all forces cancel out. There's no preferred direction because the universe is uniform. Therefore, the universe is static. The universe is static Because all the forces, left, right, up, down, cancel each other exactly. But, Isaac Newton said, there's a flaw even in his own argument. And that is, if you have, for example, a stack of cards, and the slightest disturbance on the stack of cards will send the whole thing tumbling down. So in other words, the universe has to be precisely fine-tuned to be exactly uniform but that's impossible. You just look outside and you see that the stars are more or less randomly distributed on average, evenly, but they are randomly distributed. So I, so Newton thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. First, the universe has to be infinite or else it would collapse because gravity is attractive, not repulsive. But second of all, it has to be fine-tuned exactly so that all forces left, right, up, down, cancel exactly because the slightest perturbation the slightest defect will eventually, over billions of years, cause all the stars to tumble once again. Newton was stumped. The greatest scientific genius of all time didn't know what to say. At that point, he simply threw his hands up in the air and said, well, sometimes God has to intervene. He has to tweak the laws of motion so that the universe doesn't collapse into a gigantic fireball. So, Newton believed that, yes, God exists, yes, God created the clock, yes, the clock beats more or less without divine intervention, but once in a while, God has to intervene in the affairs of the universe or the universe will collapse. Well, now comes Einstein, who comes up yet with a new point of view concerning this paradox. Einstein said, yes, gravity is attractive, therefore, you might think that the universe should collapse. But, he said, perhaps there is an anti-gravitational force called the cosmological constant, and there's a balance between gravity and anti-gravity. Well, that's one way to do it. But the other way to do it is more accepted today, and that's called the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory answers the question, why doesn't the universe collapse? Because gravity is attractive. Even Einstein's equations admit two types of solutions. Expanding universes and collapsing universes. So if the universe expands, as in the Big Bang theory pioneered in the 1920s, if the universe expands, that solves the paradox. Why doesn't the universe collapse? Because the universe is constantly expanding. So that was Einstein's take on that question. But then there is yet the bigger question, and that is then, what about God? Well, Einstein answered it this way. Einstein said that, well, there really are two kinds of God, and you have to distinguish between these two types of God. First of all, there's the personal God, the God that you pray to, the God that answers your prayers at Christmas and you get that shiny red bicycle, the God that smites the Philistines and destroys your enemies, the God that performs miracles and walks on water. Well, Einstein couldn't get himself to believe in a personal God. Einstein believed in a second type of God, and that is the God of Spinoza. In other words, the God of beauty, harmony, order, simplicity, elegance. The universe is so gorgeous, it didn't have to be that way. The universe could have been random. It could have been ugly. And yet here we have natural laws that you could write on a sheet of paper. That's right. You can write down Einstein's theory of gravity in one line. And the quantum theory, well, that takes about 10 lines. But together, that one sheet of paper summarizes everything that is known about the universe today. So Einstein said that he's like a child entering a library. This huge, gigantic library full of different kinds of volumes the Mysteries of Natural Law explain, And all he could do, all humanity could do, was take the first volume, open it up, read chapter 1, page 1. And yet before him was all these volumes. Well, the God Letter is up for sale. And some people are saying, well, no, that's not what Einstein believed at all. Einstein said the concept of God is flawed. So what? how do we reconcile the two? I personally think that the people who interpret the God letter interpreted it incorrectly. When Einstein writes that the concept of God is a childish concept, he meant the personal God, the God that answers your prayers. Why should the God of the universe care what you get for Christmas? He has more important things to do. So Einstein believed in the God of Spinoza. So in other words, he was an agnostic. He said so over and over. So it was not as if he thought the concept of God was childish. It's that the concept of the personal God was childish. But then the existence of God himself, Einstein left it open. And Einstein more or less bordered on the idea that the laws of physics, the laws of physics could be like a God. Well, then the next question is, what about Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking posthumously has come out with a new book, a new book that summarizes many of his previous writings. And in this book, he says, bah, humbug, forget all these theological nonsense. Look at the science. The science says, there is no God. And he gives a scientific proof of the non-existence of God, which I found very interesting. Hawking says the following, the universe started with the Big Bang. And the Big Bang, in turn, started from this tiny, tiny little infinitely small thing that suddenly exploded, giving us the universe today. How long did it take for the universe to be created? Oh, fractions of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. Almost instantly, the universe expanded into its present-day form. That is the Big Bang theory coming from Einstein's own general theory of relativity. So, says Stephen Hawking, quote, there was no time. There was no time to create the universe and the laws and everything we see around us. The universe sprung instantly from this tiny singularity. And therefore, there was no time for anyone, a person, a God, the God himself. There was no time to create the universe. And so he's basically saying he has a proof of the non-existence of God. But personally, I think there's a flaw in that argument a flaw that even Einstein himself realized. You see, this proof of the non-existence of God, that there was no time to create the universe, is based on Einstein's theory of relativity, which is flawed. Einstein himself realized that the general theory of relativity is useless at the instant of the Big Bang and the center of a black hole. At both places, gravity becomes infinite and We want to banish infinities from the laws of science. Infinity means nothing to a physicist. And therefore, Einstein himself realized that there was a defect in his own equations because they fail at the instant of the Big Bang and the center of a black hole. So Einstein believed in a higher theory, a unified field theory. A unified field theory where the quantum theory would emerge as a consequence of this higher theory. Now, today, we do have a candidate. It's not proven, but we have a candidate for the theory of everything, and that's called string theory. String theory is what I do for a living. That's my day job. So, I have a stake in this debate. So, what does string theory say about this? Well, string theory's claim to fame is that it has no infinities at all. It is a totally finite theory. Therefore, you can answer the question, what happened before the Big Bang? Was there no time to create the universe, as Stephen Hawking has said? Well, string theory gives you a different take on the whole question. First of all, Einstein's theory of gravity says that the universe is a bubble of some sort. We live on the skin of the bubble, and the bubble is expanding. That's called the Big Bang Theory, as seen on CBS television. Well, if the Big Bang theory is based on a bubble that's expanding, string theory is based on other bubbles, a multiverse of bubbles, a bubble bath, a bubble bath of universes. Universes universe is constantly being created and destroyed. Why? Because the Big Bang was a quantum event. And if it happened once, there's a certain probability it'll happen again and again and again. That's the nature of the quantum theory meaning that Big Bangs are happening all the time. Even as we speak, Big Bangs are taking place. And so sometimes these bubbles can bump into each other, creating a bigger bubble, or these bubbles can peel off a baby bubble, and that could be the Big Bang. So in other words, there was something before creation. There was something beyond our universe And so that's the defect in Hawking's Disproof of the Existence of God. It's based on Einstein's own defective theory that Einstein himself realized was defective. That's why Einstein spent the last 30 years of his life, from 1925 to 1955, puzzling over this grand unified field theory. So then the question is, well, what's my point of view? Yes, I have a point of view, and for what it's worth, let me tell you what my point of view is. First of all, when I was a child, I realized that my parents were Buddhists. In Buddhism, there is no beginning. There is no end. There's only nirvana, higher states of consciousness. So there was no creation as we know it in Buddhist thinking. However, because my parents were locked up during World War II, in a relocation camp, they wanted the kids to understand American culture. So they sent me to Sunday school, where I joined the Presbyterian Church, and I learned all about Genesis, and all about the parables, and the stories in the Bible. And, well, when you read about Genesis, you realize that, hey, maybe there was a Big Bang. So the Big Bang theory, according to the Catholic Church, its latest thinking is, the Big Bang is compatible compatible with Genesis, that there was an event, a beginning of time, which seems to agree with the Big Bang theory. In fact, one of the creators of the Big Bang theory was, in fact, a a Catholic minister. And so here we have a theory of the Big Bang that seems to be scientifically correct. But you see, if string theory is correct, it means that Big Bangs are happening all the time, and these bubbles are floating in a higher arena This higher arena is hyperspace, a higher dimension, which you can think of as nirvana. So in other words, here is a new picture, the multiverse. The multiverse gives us a new picture of Buddhism and Christianity, that yes, our universe had a beginning, our universe had a beginning, but there are other universes out there, Each one of these universes has its own laws of physics and it expands. All these universes are expanding into nirvana. And what is nirvana? Nirvana is a dimension beyond our bubble. If our bubble is three-dimensional, it means that nirvana must be higher than three-dimensional. And string theory even gives you a prediction. The universe must be 11-dimensional. And so think of this arena, this large arena of 11-dimensional nirvana where bubbles form and these bubbles pop into existence. Now, then the question is, can you prove or disprove the existence of God? Well, I don't think you can either prove or disprove the existence of God. So I think Hawking's disproof of the existence of God is a bit premature. In fact, it is impossible to disprove a negative. For example, let's say that unicorns don't exist. Well, that's a reasonable assumption, but can you prove it? Can you prove philosophically and theologically that unicorns cannot exist? Maybe, maybe someplace on a deserted island, someplace far, far from civilization, there is a unicorn. We find strange things happening all the time. So, you see, the point is you cannot disprove a negative. Personally, I think that a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, we'll still be debating the question about whether you can mathematically prove or disprove the existence of God. Now, it turns out that if you Google my name, some people claim that, I have claimed, that you can prove the existence of God. Well, that's fake news. Sorry about that. Somebody wants to piggyback on my name. I make no such statement. In fact, I say the opposite, that you cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. Because science is based on things that are testable, reproducible, falsifiable. That's called science. But the existence of God, I think, cannot be proven. It cannot be reproduced. It cannot be falsifiable. And therefore, it is beyond the province of ordinary science. So I would call that agnosticism. Maybe, maybe not. That God exists. You know, when I was in college, at one point I thought that, well, if I don't become a physicist, maybe I can become a philosopher. So I read the works of St. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian, and he had five proofs of the existence of God, three of which have been studied very carefully and are not redundant with the others the cosmological, the teleological, and the ontological proof of the existence of God. Well, we can now look at these three proofs from a scientific point of view. The teleological proof of the existence of God is God by design. For example, if you're walking on the sands of Mars, everything is worn down, the sands of Mars have pretty much sandblasted everything in sight, and all of a sudden you see a camera, a beautiful camera on the surface of Mars with beautiful lenses and reflexes, and you say to yourself, well, the Martians... The Martians must have built this camera. And then you walk further on the sands of Mars and then you see a rabbit. A rabbit with an eyeball infinitely more delicate than the mechanisms and the lenses of the camera. A rabbit whose reflexes require a biology far beyond anything that can be seen inside a camera. And so if you assume that a camera has a maker, then the rabbit must also have a maker even greater than the Martians, in other words, God. So this is proof of God by design. However, today we have the laws of evolution, where things evolve all by themselves without any divine intervention, so out of chaos can come order because of survival of the fittest. Now, the cosmological proof simply says first mover, and that has some merit because the first mover would be the Big Bang. Now, the ontological proof is more delicate. It says that God is perfect, and if God didn't exist, he wouldn't be perfect, so he must exist. So existence and perfection are identical. A perfect being must exist, because if he didn't exist, he wouldn't be perfect. Well, it was Immanuel Kant who finally picked apart that argument, and that is perfection and existence really are two separate concepts. So just because you're perfect does not mean that you exist. Now, the argument about first mover simply says that for something to move, something has to kick it. And for that object to move, something has to kick it. And so you have this infinite sequence of kickers, each one causing the next object to be moved, but then... The question is, where is the first kicker, the first mover that set everything into motion? In other words, there cannot be an infinite sequence of motions, each one kicking the next. It has to be a source, an origin for all this, and that is creation. And therefore, it is compatible with the Big Bang Theory because, in some sense, the energy of the Big Bang is the energy that set everything into motion. The stars, the galaxies, everything we see around us was set into motion because of the first mover, and that was the Big Bang itself. And so even the Catholic Church has stated that the Big Bang theory is compatible with Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 of the Bible. Well, that concludes the first part of exploration and continuing our discussion of religion and spirituality. We're going to bring on John Brinster, a physicist who has extensive knowledge about Einstein's life as well as his spiritual and religious life as well. And so once again, in the second half of exploration, we're going to continue our discussion of God and religion. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at one 800 735-0230. seven three five oh two three oh. Once again for a copy of today's program call the Pacifica Program Service at one eight hundred seven three five O two three oh stay tuned. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we discussed the question of God, given the fact that God is in the news. On one hand, Stephen Hawking, with his latest book, comes out and says, bah, humbug, there's no God because there wasn't enough time for God to create the universe at the instant of the Big Bang. And then we have the Einstein Papers, the God Papers, up for auction. Millions of dollars are going to be spent as people chase, in the original handwriting, Einstein's thoughts on the question of God. But did the media overstate the case? Well, we're going to talk today with John Brinster, a biographer of Einstein. He's a physicist at Princeton University and he's had numerous contacts with Einstein himself, as well as Werner von Braun, the father of the missile program. So once again, our special guest in the second part of exploration is John Brinster, who will explore the spiritual and religious dimensions of Einstein's thoughts. The first question for you is: How did you first get to know Albert Einstein?
1: Well. Because I was a student at Princeton, I graduated uh, in physics in 1943, and he was in the community. And I moved uh, uh, within a block or two from where he lived at 112 Mercer Road, and uh, my family saw him quite frequently walking to the Institute for Advanced Study. My prime contacts were in symposia and meetings, uh, not so much on a personal level. I listened uh, intently to everything he said uh, uh, when he spoke, uh, but my interest in Einstein was in his mind and his uh, ideas of spirituality uh, as opposed to physics.
0: Okay, well, sometimes Einstein, when asked whether or not he had a philosophy of the universe and God, would mention that he believed in the god of Spinoza. Well, what is that? Uh, Could you explain a little bit about some of his um, religious and philosophical beliefs that seem to coincide with those of Spinoza?
1: Well, I'm not sure that I'm completely qualified to discuss Spinoza, although uh, Einstein did mention him on many occasions. What Einstein uh uh answered to the many questions that he was asked about spirituality uh was basically specific. He was very uh convinced of his position. Churchmen would ask him questions, write letters to him and he would answer those letters on the back of the envelopes in which the questions came, and they, they were always directed uh, uh, to one thing, and that he did not believe in any personal God. He did not believe that um, prayer was effective, that there could be any response uh, 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 from p- prayer to a personal God, but he believed in a transcendental um, natural force, which he felt he could never fully understand. Uh, he, uh, he admired nature, he admired the beauty of nature, and he always used the word imperfectly uh, with respect to the understanding of nature. So, in effect, uh, I interpreted uh, his religion to be what I had written at times about a natural religion. uh, One in which uh, the forces of nature uh, were the forces of the universe, and uh, man being um, uh, very new in the universe, only a million years or so uh, old, uh, would, n- would never understand nature entirely.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about a little bit about Isaac Newton and other physicists. Um, Many physicists look at material forces, objective, material, mechanical forces that govern our world as set forth first by Isaac Newton. But Newton himself believed in God, not necessarily such a personal God that answers prayers, but a God that set things into motion. Now, Einstein, being a great physicist whose laws actually replaced those of Isaac Newton, uh, well, where in those laws do we see the hand of God?
1: In my opinion, uh, being very interested in the human mind and how it works, uh, of course, we knew very little about neuroscience, at the time of Einstein, but in time we learn more and more about it. And in the development of the human brain
0: uh, in
1: the process of emergence from the animal brain, uh, it's clear that the brain developed an area, the prefrontal area, of judgment, reason, and logic, which didn't exist prior to that time. And yet the animal emotions which humans inherited uh, uh, were uh, very powerful. And uh, my view is, and maybe I interpreted this a little bit from the Einstein view, uh, is that the period of development of human logic is not yet ended. Uh, That is, we may only be halfway into the period. That is, logic, judgment, uh, and uh, reason are still developing in man and uh, perhaps in a few more millennia. uh, We will see religion differently.
0: Okay, well let's talk about science and religion. Einstein once said that science without religion is lame, but religion without science is blind. So he loved to talk about God. He called God the old one, the lawgiver, but in some sense it was the God of harmony, uh, the God of unity, rather than the personal God that answers prayers and Uh, parts the waters and intervenes in the affairs of men and women. So could you explain to us a little bit about what is this God of Harmony, the lawgiver, as Einstein used to write?
1: Well, obviously he did mention God many times. He certainly uh, mentioned God informally in his uh, conversations with his fellow scientists. and uh, Some of the uh theological people probably misinterpreted that to 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 relate to a personal god but uh i understand it as you do uh that his uh reference to god uh was the god of nature the god uh that followed all the laws of nature that man uh is attempting to learn and, and uh, survive by, uh, so that uh, uh, his, his God was essentially the God that I tried to define in this new book.
0: Now, Einstein once wrote a beautiful passage concerning how he viewed knowledge, science, and the entire universe in the following way. He said that if you are a child entering a library full of millions and millions of volumes, you are in awe of this vast storehouse of knowledge, and yet you can only pick up the first volume, and you can only read perhaps a few pages of the first volume, and yet in front of you is this huge library of knowledge. And in some sense, he said, the library is the universe. The library is a storehouse of wondrous facts, wondrous information, uh, wondrous equations, and we are the child. Humanity, all of science, is nothing but a child entering this library, able to only read the first volume and perhaps only a few pages of the first volume. So what are your thoughts concerning how Einstein viewed this great library of knowledge?
1: Well, I go back to what I Said before That is, uh, from the very beginning, uh, the human mind has developed a bank of knowledge. Um, one bit of knowledge is added to another, and much of this has been written down uh, according to the interpretation of the writer. Uh, all writing uh, hasn't matched perfectly, but the uh, uh, humanity in, uh, in the uh, many uh, millennia of existence uh, has, through the function of the mind, uh, drawn conclusions about the position of man and about the, uh, the nature of the universe, and that all has been recorded and eventually has been sifted out and drawn to specific conclusions. Uh, your mind, for example, I understand, uh, has concentrated a lot on the complexity of the universe, of the multiplicity uh, of the 10 dimensions of string theory, and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm way behind you. I'm still uh, with Bohr and Heisenberg And uh, Wigner, Feynman, uh, Pauli, uh, John Wheeler, uh, you're a modern scientist. And uh, you are apt to see uh, things quite differently uh, with basically the same mind uh, that uh, Einstein applied to his theoretical work.
0: Okay, well, would it be fair to say that in some sense there are two kinds of God, that we have to be more careful about the word God, that Einstein did not believe in the God of intervention, the God that answers prayers, the God that parts the waters, uh, the God that smites the Philistines. Not that kind of God, but the God of harmony, the God of unification, and that God then set the universe into motion. Would that be a fair statement?
1: Yes, that would be a fair statement, but you have to bear in mind that all those words that you bring forth are human words developed from the human mind uh, as the mind's interpretation of what it uh, it acquires through its five senses uh, the uh, uh, i I often think. That the uh, interpretation of nature uh, is uh, uh, quite impossible because uh, the there is no language uh, in the human mind that's that's a very recent age that can apply uh, to the uh, to nature which has existed. Uh, essentially forever. We haven't developed the, uh, the language uh, to describe uh, the God of nature,
0: so to speak. Okay, now let's talk about where the universe came from in Genesis. Uh, Genesis said God set the whole thing into motion. Now physicists have the Big Bang Theory. And the Big Bang theory simply set itself into motion for reasons we don't understand. But then people ask the embarrassing question, well, where did the Big Bang come from? Well, maybe perhaps there were many bangs. But then the other question is, even if you have many sequence of Big Bangs in a multiverse of universes, then where did the physics come from? Where did Einstein's equations come from? In other words, you go all the way back, even further than the Big Bang, to the laws of physics themselves, and at that point, Einstein would simply say, well, those are given to us by God. Now, this is not intelligent design. This is not the intelligent design of uh, certain people who dispute evolution and say that there's a hand of God uh, creating evolution in one way, uh, creating humans as, as, uh, as a watchmaker designs watches. However, we are left with this embarrassing question. If there is a unified field theory, the theory that Einstein tried to find that would allow him to, quote, read the mind of God, then where did the unified field theory come from?
1: Well, I, you're very right to question that, and it's a, certainly a difficult uh, question. I believe it goes back to the idea that I mentioned before, and that is the human mind has many limitations. Uh, it goes back to the very structure and function of the mind itself. The, the brain is a, is a, a biological mechanism. Uh, it's stimulated by uh, five senses. It, uh, the information that it, it acquires uh, goes through the hippocampus to uh, what we call memory and that memory is used as the basis for all uh, behavior and, and action. And uh, I'm not so sure that the human brain uh, is in a position yet to have sufficient understanding to, uh, to uh, explain any of that which you say. Uh, the human mind again, is so limited still, uh, being uh, no more than a million years old, uh, perhaps in another million years or so, uh, it may have developed further. There may be more neurons, uh, more complexity, more understanding. Uh, my my book... Uh, man who created God, was based on not only Einstein's idea of religion, but how how a formal religion would be created if Einstein were uh, an aggressive religious leader.
0: Okay. Now, also, when Einstein was asked, uh, what is your goal in life, he said that his goal in life was to, quote, read the mind of God, that is have an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow him to unify all the laws of physics. That was his goal in life. So, in some sense, if you were to ask then, what is the God of Einstein? The God of Einstein, in some sense, would be the unified field theory. That is, this one-inch equation from which everything springs, the Big Bang, the formation of galaxies, the creation of the planet Earth, All of these would be summarized into one equation, and from what I read of Einstein's work, God is either the unified field theory itself or the creator of the unified field theory. You think that's a fair statement?
1: I don't think it's entirely a fair statement. I I think the idea is a good one. Uh, I don't think that uh, Einstein... Really felt that there was an entity a god entity that would allow humans uh to define the universe and its function uh with a small mathematical formula i i I felt that beyond that he was uh he he uh, assumed it was more complicated than that you remember uh That, in his later years uh, uh, he he said more about people of the existing world uh, he had uh, he He had great empathy uh, for people of the world, and he moved somewhat away from theoretical physics to uh his concern. About people of the world, and in a sense the uh, the book that I wrote uh, says that we will never really understand some of the things that you question, and it might be a good idea for uh, the existing cultures of the world uh, to begin to decide on. A unity of belief around nature, rather than a personal god, and get to the point where beliefs are more uh, more unified, and uh, uh, the uh, the matter of uh, of imaginative structure uh, that the mind engages in. Uh, is a deterrent to the develop to the natural development, uh, neural development of logic, and if I, I think he agreed that uh, if we could eliminate the uh, the imaginative side of religion, uh, the human mind would progress to much greater. Judgmental capability, people would agree. Uh, be, uh, there would be much more uh, universal uh, peaceful coexistence. That was that was constantly on his later mind. And okay,
0: <clears throat> and S- speaking about that, when Einstein was a child, when he was very young, one year he became extremely religious. He would cite religious texts, he would uh, actually write uh, hymnals to God, poems to God, and he would sing religious songs on his way to school and back. But then what happened was he read a science book, and the more he read about science, the more he realized that there was this vast discrepancy between what he learned reading these religious books and the books of science, which were reproducible, provable, falsifiable not just matters of faith, but matters of simply observation and experiment. So he saw this this fundamental conflict there. So do you think, therefore, that that is this fundamental conflict that every scientist feels that when we try to bridge the world of science and religion, that at some point a scientist realizes that natural laws can explain the universe much better than miracles?
1: You're absolutely right, and I should tell you that I had a similar experience in my life. I uh, was born and brought up as a Catholic. I served Mass uh, at a theological seminary every morning at 5.30 in the morning until I reached a similar age, about the same age as Einstein did when he began uh, to think differently. The, uh, uh, the rights and ceremonies uh, did not match uh, modern understanding as knowledge developed. And I ha- I understand uh, his uh, experience in that regard because of my own experience.
0: Okay, now if you were to then look at the current debate, uh, a lot of people are debating about God today. God, the Bible, intelligent design, uh, how do you think Einstein would view it if he were alive today? Would he be horrified that, uh, that fundamentalist Christians are trying to inject ideology on uh, biology classes? Um, and, of course, these fundamentalists also want to ban the Big Bang Theory. And the Big Bang Theory is nothing but a natural consequence of Einstein's theory and has been essentially verified looking at astronomical data so what do you think Einstein's reac- reaction would be looking at the current debate?
1: Einstein would be absolutely horrified at some of the discussions that are taking place uh, today, uh, especially in some of the more emotional new developments in belief. Uh, Einstein was absolutely firm with, in, in his belief. He never had second uh, decisions to make with respect to belief. He would be appalled at how uh, at, at how religion has penetrated cultures. Uh, to today, uh, culture and religion are so mixed up with politics uh, that one gets the impression that uh, the world will be in constant turmoil. Uh, Einstein tried to see through all that.
0: Okay, and any parting thoughts you may want to make concerning Einstein's spiritual side and his thinking about religion and God?
1: I think uh, his uh, his feeling about religion and God uh, is, relatively cut and dried uh, he didn't believe in a uh, in a personal God uh, he didn't believe in prayer uh, he didn't believe uh, that uh, in the concept of a soul he didn't believe in heaven and hell uh, he didn't believe in immortality uh, and I think that summarizes the Uh, his belief in in a nutshell.
0: Well, I think you've correctly summarized what Einstein did not believe in. He didn't believe in the trappings of religion or in a personal God, but he did believe in the God of Spinoza, that is, a God of harmony, beauty, simplicity. The universe didn't have to be this way. It could have been ugly. In fact, in his writings, Einstein talked about the old one, the lawgiver, In other words, where did the laws of physics come from? Even though the laws of physics allow us to explain much of what we see around us, it still leaves open the question of, well, where did the laws of physics come from? And on that question, Einstein was silent. He didn't know. He just believed that it was just so gorgeous, it was a miracle. A miracle that the universe could exist in such a splendorous way. And so Einstein never put down people who were religious. He said that the feeling of the mysterious is one of the most precious, one of one of the greatest emotions that we can possibly experience. Not the emotion of learning about physical law, but the appreciation of the mysterious. That is the boundary between what is known and what is not known. And this is what fascinated Einstein. Why did the universe have to be so ordered? Why did the universe have to be so gorgeous to admit planets and stars and even people? And at that point, he was silent, other than to say that, well, maybe this is the God of Spinoza. Not the God that you pray to, not the God that smites the Philistines, but another kind of God, the lawgiver, a kind of God that makes this gorgeous universe possible. I think that's the way Einstein would like to have been remembered. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And our special guest today was John Brinster, talking about God, spirituality, Einstein. What does physics say anything about this great universe of ours? According to Newton, Galileo, Einstein, and now Stephen Hawking. So once again, if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. Good day.